Um, and, you know, I think this is happening. It's happening on broadcast. It's happening online. Sorry, my doorbell just rang. It threw me <laughs> off for a second. I was like, are you, are you getting some lunch right now? <laughs> PG Media Lab from each of our respective homes. I am your host, Scott Elcherson, and this episode was recorded on Wednesday, April 22nd, 2020. Um, as always, we have Adam, my co-host, joining me all the way from Brooklyn. Adam, how's it going? Doing great. All right. Short and to the point. I like it. So with that, to kick us off on the first half of this roundtable discussion, we have two very special guests joining us. First, we have our very own Christina Andronli, the Director of Strategy here at the IPG Media Lab. So Christina, welcome back. It's been a long four weeks without you. I'm so happy to be back. Oh, uh, well, we're excited to have you here. And we have Chelsea Freitas, Partner of Strategy at UM. So Chelsea, welcome to Floor 9. Hello, hello. Happy to be here. I'm glad to have you both here. Live is having a pretty big moment right now. For example, the IPG Media Lab, we're now live on Fridays. We'll, we'll talk more about that later in the show. But then on top of that, we saw one of the biggest live events happen over the past weekend uh, where hundreds of different celebrities and artists came together to do a live concert uh, or live broadcast for COVID relief. Um, so Adam and Christina, Chelsea, what is going on with live right now? Yeah. So, you know, the two traditional pillars of live content are news and sports. Um, and obviously right now there's a, a ton of news content. There's a ton of people watching live news and engaging with that content in, in on both online and on uh, more traditional channels. Um, but the other side of it, sports is, is basically not present, right? There's, we've seen some uh, teams and leagues move into esports to sort of fill that gap, uh, but there's still even in, even with that happening, there's still a, t a lot less uh, sports content, and so everybody I think is sort of looking for what are things that we can use to fill that void, and uh, you know acknowledging that that everyone is uh, you know locked at home uh, and not you know able to get to studios or able to to work in studios, um, and I think it is starting to shift our expectations and the aesthetics of what we uh, expect out of professional content. Um, I, you know, we talk a lot about the uh, pandemic as a trend accelerator. And I think this is really accelerating a trend where we're starting to see professional content and, you know, traditional Hollywood uh, uh, people, celebrities and production companies a really quickly adopt the aesthetics of YouTube and podcasting. And, you know, I think that this is something that was going to happen eventually anyway, because, you know, you have a generation who grow, grew up on YouTube. They're going to have different expectations around uh, sort of production quality once they start taking over Hollywood. Uh, but it's happening now because it's what we have available. And I think, yeah, when you think about going live BC before coronavirus... Um, going live, I feel like was a lot of rappers going on and walking around and talking kind of aimlessly and maybe after a night of a little too much Hennessy. And I think what we've seen now is that the people who are going live span different industries, definitely span different levels of fame, um, but also span kind of what they're talking about in going live. That could be things like a live meditation or tonight there's a global sound bath in honor of Earth Day that's bringing together millions of people from around the globe or 
sports, like Adam mentioned, um, I think we're seeing new types of creators as well, um, which I think is opening up new ways for brands to get involved too. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Chelsea, do you have anything else to add to that conversation? Like, what are you seeing from like, like your own insights? Like, I mean, are you going live on Instagram, like on, on the weekend? Or are you like zooming with your friends? Like, like what's the, uh, what, what's the word on the street? So you'll see me on Zoom, lots of game nights, happy hours. Um, I think the only thing I would add here is not only is it a breadth of content and industries, we're seeing something live for people of all ages. Everything from like a Michelle Obama reading for kids um, to these like planned meditations and workout videos to like music festivals, bringing in people from around the world, like to all share these experiences together. I, I really like Christina Tozzi's like uh, daily baking club. I, she's rolling that out on IG and she'll post a picture of like all the ingredients you need. And then the next day, like host it around like 2 p.m. They're really when it comes to like demographics, there really is something for everyone who wants to participate in, in a live experience. We've mentioned Instagram a few times right now, um, and it seems like Instagram was that de facto go live platform, uh, at least for the non esports and gaming community, let's say. Um, but with this shift to live, like what are all the different platforms out there that are, you know, giving people the avail- like the capabilities to go live? I think. There, there definitely are. Uh, Twitch, I think, is seeing a big expansion out, outside of their core of gaming and esports right now. As you know, people again sort of think about them as one of the default places to do live content. But we also see it on you know LinkedIn. LinkedIn has had a real surge in live content even before the pandemic, and I think it's happening you know again even more now that everybody is is stuck at home. Um, and then you know all those uh, you know as Chelsea was mentioning, Zoom, House Party, like anything that has a video component, people are using it to create and distribute content right now. We were, you know, we at the lab were doing uh, webinars inside of Microsoft Teams. Uh, and turns out that's actually a fairly robust production platform. Who knew? <laughs> so, you know, I think any tool that people can use to generate live content is, uh, is, is, is up for grabs right now. Fortnite is, uh, you know, they've done a bunch of uh, live events in Fortnite before, but they're just rolling out Travis Scott uh, this coming weekend uh, with a, a bunch of live concerts. I think we're going to see more uh, of those gaming platforms also lean into live events. I think YouTube is doing some interesting stuff with their premieres tool for creators. Um, they've had it around for a couple years, but we're seeing studios like HBO use YouTube premieres to go live. I'm putting that in quotes alongside the release on uh, HBO streaming platforms of some of their upcoming shows. Um, and I think an even broader swath of creators using YouTube premieres. I We're seeing a ton of experiment right now too um, on brand O&O sites for different forms of going live. There's an app that I keep seeing or a tool I should say called Hero that a lot of brands in the apparel, beauty, retail space are using that essentially is a solution for brands to get messaging, video calls, um, photo exchanges with consumers, things like that, that they can embed into their own e-commerce platforms. And we're seeing brands like Estee Lauder, Decium, for example, using the video chat tool to go live with consumers. Yes, of course, it's a customer service tool, but I think it's also showing the power of potentially generating different content through users directly, soliciting feedback through users direct. Um, they're getting that feedback, they're getting that content, and we're seeing brands increasingly use that 
user-generated content in their marketing and what they're doing to respond to coronavirus as well. Absolutely. There's, there are definitely a lot of use cases for live today. I think you, we've kind of touched on a few of these throughout the, our conversation already, but like you said, you know, there's gaming, there's people are doing comedy shows, cooking, interviews, hanging out, eating workouts. Um, you know, beauty brands I think are really interesting because they're like native to social. And I feel like there are some of the brands that are the first to move to a new feature or platform that, you know, uh, our consumers kind of like adopt to, or they can take advantage of to reach their consumers over social. Um, so Chelsea, knowing that you do do a, a lot of work with like beauty brands, like how do you see them adapting to live and, uh, just kind of being a part of that conversation? Yeah, absolutely. I think you nailed it for a category where touch and play, is so essential to like the product and the purchase experience, we've seen a lot of brands like pivot very quickly. And I think in terms of social brands where like the wall has really been brought down, we've been seeing this happen over time, starting with like brands like Glossier that really opened up that informal channel of communication. For the most part, beauty brands right now really want to be seen as a resource, as an ally, um, pushing out content that matters to their audiences. So like a Kiehl's hosting Mask and Meditate Monday or a Kosas um, hosting the Golden Hour Meetup where people can interact with experts. A lot of brands are putting out that content to position themselves as credible beauty partners. Uh, something I really like, uh, lots of like virtual try-on tools and Zoom makeup tutorials that feel really relevant in this moment. But beyond that, I really love when brands are pushing self-expression, creativity, and taking that wall down to be more authentic. So like a Fenty Beauty, um, they actually launched the TikTok Beauty House prior to COVID. They've now like still found a way to push it out and do a lot of live video. But a brand that's always stood, you know, for inclusivity, they actually are making their people and their fans the creators. So I think that spirit of creativity and especially when it comes to beauty where, you know, it's a moment to experiment and try new things why not turn the camera back on people who are willing to like to showcase it? Does the raw format match or reflect in any way like a movement towards a more raw sense of beauty and aesthetic? Yes. Um, I think that's a fantastic question. And I think we've seen the industry again shifting. Trends aren't born on the runway or backstage anymore. No one really wants to see that major polish or that perfection that is definitely out. While people do still want to look like photo ready and social will always play an important role, trends are born on TikTok. We want to see what people are doing and how they're doing it so creatively and uniquely to them. Beauty has always been such a personal um, category. And I think now the more genuine and scrappy people can be, that's what's really taking off and shining. It's interesting on TikTok too. I feel like the creators that are on TikTok, those younger consumers in Gen Z know how to set up their home studio to shoot beautiful videos for TikTok. The creators themselves know, because they're digitally native, know how to set up their own studio and do production that's almost good enough to look, it's like natural plus, but maybe not to the scale of like a Hollywood or an advertising shoot production. Yeah, absolutely. And so, Christina, I actually I want to go really deep on that point right there that you just made of, you know, how does this production model then change for brands looking to get into this live environment? Yeah, I think it's uh, it's interesting because we are seeing 
um, Hollywood professionals and celebrities uh, have to catch up to what uh, teenagers on TikTok are doing. You know, they're used to walking into a studio and having the lighting and the sound all adjusted for them uh, and have very expensive, large cameras pointed at them. Um, and now they're, I've read anecdotally that uh, a lot of a lot of them uh, are just being sent iPhones in the mail just to make sure they have the best iPhone possible. But it's, uh, you know, we're not going to teach Stephen Colbert how to use a, uh, a professional camera rig right now, even if we could get one to his home. But he know, already knows how to use a phone. So it's more about getting them over the hump of how do you uh, how do you light yourself at home? How do you mic yourself at home? Uh, again, all these things that a lot of teenagers uh, already know how to do as soon as they they get their first phone. They are they're already pros at it. I mean, I think that shift to having entire production studio in your pocket is something that is is going to stick around even once we we are able to go back to studios. I think we will see more production happening in our homes, in the streets, when we're allowed to go in the streets again, uh, you know, uh, in in other places using mobile devices because they just they are good enough to do uh, most of this um, as as evidenced by TikTok and and a lot of YouTube stars as well. To that point, Adam, I think we talk so much about, you know, driving relevancy and really seeding brands and culture when we th- when we see like production shift and change, it actually allows brands and creators to pivot more quickly and to really respond to how culture is changing. And Chelsea, I think the underlying assumption of that is a movement forward in visual culture in a way, right? We're not going after glossy, blown out Valentino gowns on re- on red carpets anymore, we're watching movies like Honey Boy, for example, that feel much more like a TikTok visual production in a way. It's a bit more frenetic of a pace, um, and it feels much more like social content than movies of old have prior. And I think what that does is when it's seeded through entertainment, it drives through to consumers and eventually makes its way to brands where the whole aesthetic of advertising could change as the result of, yes, a shift towards mobile video consumption and this more live quick cut video that we're seeing. But I think that permeates through to after this crisis happens, we could just see a shift entirely in visually in what is accepted. It, it's sort of like what, what Chelsea was saying about, uh, you know, beauty trends, but translating all the way down to media and Hollywood. Um, and brands, I think, you know, I think brands are probably a little nervous about shifting that aesthetic because it seems less professional in quotes uh, and, and less polished. But I think that once they start seeing, you know, Hollywood and celebrities doing it as well, I think that gives them the courage and the uh, the sort of evidence uh, that this is a real thing. And, and it's, it's, it's okay and acceptable in our culture to do it. But what about content that has already been recorded? You know, this idea like on-demand content, is is that still able to go live? Can, is there something that brands can do or the owners of that IP uh, do to make that content live? Yeah, I think the thing that I'm seeing is brands and influencers kind of eventizing uh, catalog content and pre-recorded content uh, by like hosting live, uh, you know, co-viewing while, while talking about it on Twitter, um, you know, pulling stuff out of like the Hulu catalog, let's say, um, and posting about it on Twitter with, you know, one one episode a night or four episodes, uh, you know, over a Saturday afternoon, things like that to sort of 
give people that feeling of connection and that that social space uh, uh, to hang out around the content. Um, but you can really do that with with any content that you have. Um, you just need to uh, find a brand or an influencer who has a large enough following to sort of get people excited about it. Um, and then you know from there, uh, you know they they will they will tune in, they will watch along together because, you know, as we, as we have been talking about a lot, people are looking for social things they can do remotely. Um, and I think, you know, after the first week or two, uh, just staring at each other in zoom, uh, started to get a little boring. So giving, giving people, you know, uh, something to watch and talk about, uh, is, uh, pretty valuable these days. And, and that, that curation and that community and that, that social connection is, uh, something that is pretty easy, I think, for, for any brands to lean into. Yeah, I think the one other thought is just enabling like everyday people to participate. Like do brands have a role there? So like when people are on dating apps, like we do a lot of partnerships with Bumble, for example, in the beauty space. How do we actually embolden or like prompt action from everyday people, like empowering them with that confidence to go live and chat with somebody? I think there is a role for brands not only to put out their own content, but to actually like prompt people to feel bold enough to do it themselves. So how do how do we see live video evolving uh, as we look towards the recovery phase? What are the new you know types of live video that might come out? Do we see shopping potentially get involved with it? Um, what are what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think we've already seen some experiments in China with using live stream to provide shoppable live experiences. I do think that live video consumption has been accelerated by the coronavirus crisis and will continue after this as a popular form of media consumption. But I do expect that shopability to be more embedded into live video, benefiting brands, but also giving consumers a brand new storefront to buy from. Yeah, I think we've seen commerce tied to live content sort of bubbling in the US. Uh, the other thing that I keep thinking about is just the, this this aesthetic shift and uh, that the faster brands can get comfortable with the aesthetics of live, uh, the more prepared they're going to be uh, across every kind of medium. To that point, consumers are going to get used to the speed of um, shoppable live video, and it, it will have brand implications if you're not able to meet that or don't have some form of that in place. Yeah, absolutely. And so Chelsea, I want to end on this question for you. You know, how can brands go live today? What best practices do you have to offer uh, different client teams that are looking to get out there and, and start experimenting with the, with, with the live platform? Yeah, I think to the point on speed, it's going to be really important for brands to be able to pivot and move quickly, responding to the environment we're in, the culture we're in, to really remain like relevant with people today. So there's a couple ways that brands can do it immediately. We've talked so much about shoppable. I think AR is a really important feature right now to help transport people out of this moment. Um, I think brands can also really have a role in surrounding other live experiences. They don't always have to be the content creators themselves, but having an important role with either, you know, responsive social or um, showing up in moments when they can prompt action from a consumer to actually go live themselves. For beauty, it's like, how do we empower people or embolden them or provide them with that confidence to flip the switch. Maybe there's like um, a really strategically placed ad that follows a tutorial or a virtual try on where we then shine the spotlight back on consumers or give them the opportunity to go live themselves. To add to that point, um, just understanding where your audience is today. 
right? Like what platforms are they on and start experimenting, you know, give yourself the permission to fail. And if they're on Instagram, you know, go live on Instagram. If they're on Twitch or Twitter, go experiment there. I think, I think one of the most important things that brands can be doing right now is just starting to do it uh, and starting to experiment with it um, and getting out there. Adam, Chelsea, and Christina, thank you so much for joining the roundtable discussion on on live. Uh, it's been a pleasure and uh, looking forward to uh, seeing what everybody creates. Up next, we have a conversation between UM's Joshua Locock and the Chief Revenue Officer over at the Washington Post, Joy Robbins, for a conversation about news, COVID-19, and what it all means for brands. So Joshua, take it away. Thanks, Scott. Hi, Joy. It's great to have you joining us. I've got Joy Robbins, the Chief Revenue Officer of the Washington Post, with me. Let's get into it. Uh, the first thing I want to talk to you about is news. It's definitely a peak time right now, and there's a hunger for information, and that's going across digital, television. What are you sort of seeing on the Washington Post? I've heard reports across the industry, views are up 50%. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're seeing um, similar trends on the Washington Post. Uh, Comscore reported us uh, last month as having our best month ever, uh, nearly 140 million unique users. So it's it's a tremendous audience surge as we see people looking for news and information that they can trust um, throughout the crisis. Uh, so, I mean, news is a broad topic and obviously people are coming in for information about the pandemic, but outside of the pandemic, when are they coming in? Are they coming in all throughout the day? Are there certain peak periods? Yeah, it's actually really interesting. I was talking to our head of insights to try and understand, you know, is there a really different traffic pattern that we're seeing based on this feeling that everybody's always on? And the truth is we actually see a traffic pattern pretty similar to the one that we had pre-crisis, just much, much higher in volume. So we really see those peak times um, as mid-morning through early afternoon uh, on, on the site itself, but we're just seeing the numbers be so much higher. But people are coming in. It's interesting. In the beginning, we really saw the breaking news as the main driver of what people were coming in for. Um, we've seen a return to also people coming in for what were known for uh, as the Washington Post, the analysis, the investigation, but also some of the content that we're doing as complementary or adjacent to the COVID coverage in that our lifestyle sections, um, what to do while you're at home. So, so it's, it's, it's following uh, a pretty similar trend, but we're seeing the patterns with which people take throughout the site evolve. I guess that's pretty, that comment about lifestyles, pretty interesting. So is that like a return to interest in lifestyle? Are you sort of seeing people get through the, the crisis mode of pandemic and get back into future forward planning and thinking? I think the lifestyle uh, journey that we're seeing is really more of the practical. So we have an Epicurean channel we call Voraciously. You know, people are looking for recipes when they're at home and when they're cooking. People are looking to wellness content to make sure that they're thinking about keeping uh, care of themselves and of their families. So I think it's content that still is adjacent to COVID. I don't think it's completely devoid of it. And I don't think people are just completely moving on, but I think that it goes beyond just the breaking news of the pandemic. Okay. One of the things is obviously this is going to, you know, the increased demand in news is going to place a lot of demand on both sides of the business, both from the editorial side and the advertising side. What's the impact been 
like on the organization and how you're managing that? Well, from a news perspective, I mean, obviously, it's just been such a uh, time for our editorial team to really focus and deploy against covering the pandemic. So that's really been a, a massive focus of, of the entire news side of the organization and ensuring also on the product side of the organization that we are supporting that interest product, whatever editorial needs during this period of time. On the advertising side, I think what we've really taken it to be our responsibility is helping brands and agencies translate what we're seeing from a reader behavior standpoint or what we're seeing in the news and what the coverage looks like and, and how to think about their own marketing strategies as a result. So providing reader surveys uh, that we've been conducting to better understand what the sentiment of our readers looks like, how they're feeling, what they want to see from brands when it comes to having advertising appear within our coverage, um, what's the right tone to strike, what's something that they would find valuable. So, so that is really a way, just making sense of all of this from an advertiser perspective is, is how we've really focused on the brand side, on the ad side. Okay. That sort of is a nice segue into brand safety, but I want to talk about that reader survey what like what's the feedback you're getting from advertisers who are advertising in news right now and their response to the details you're getting out of those reader surveys well what's been interesting and really something that i think the team on my side has felt a lot of uh, responsibility for is the interest i mean we've seen a real outpour from the agency and client landscape on really helping to understand things in the first place we don't usually see this much activity in terms of help us find the signal through the noise. And so what we've done is because we have such loyalty at scale, because we have a uh, actual reader panel of people who have opted in to take surveys uh, from the Washington Post, we've looked at them to, you know, we, we, we put out a survey pretty early on to say we still, we have brand partners that want to continue to support our journalism throughout this time, but they want to be sensitive to how they're communicating. What would you find uh, as relevant or what, you know, what is tolerable, what should they stay away from? And uh, overwhelmingly, as you probably can expect, given the well-covered uh, aspect of this, is they want to understand how brands are responding to help their clients, their employees, and their communities. That was number one. You know, three and five across every demo uh, was really interested in that. The second was... Um, service-driven. So help me work better from home. Help me understand uh, how to entertain my family or educate my children. If you have expertise there, how to think about investing during volatile times, give that to me. The the things people were really, you know, uh, adamant about staying away from was things that felt or ran counter to what we're hearing right now in terms of responsibility. You know, people uh, in restaurants or traveling together, um, you know, things that buck that social distancing mm -hmm. trend um, just felt like it wasn't the right time. Where we saw an interesting uh, change or, or what we saw that differed by age uh uh, demographics was you saw younger people saying they want to be entertained, that it was okay to entertain. And I think that we're seeing that shift a bit. We're seeing people feel more hopeful in the last couple of weeks. We're seeing this, I guess, permission to entertain and to, to create more light content, um, more widely accepted. But I think that was something that was interesting to us. And I think that you you asked the question of how are brands responding to it. I, mean, I think that it's been it's been really well received. I think that anything that we can do to provide a real time or 
um, temperature check of consumer sentiment is something that because it's changing so quickly, brands and agencies have really responded well to. Okay. There's a lot of great points I want to pick up there. I love the conversation about how you're seeing people become more hopeful and that permission to entertain because mm. that's sort of a signal that at least consumer sentiment and the public sentiment is shifting. But the other thing I really liked, you spoke about loyalty at scale. Mm-hmm. And one of the unique things about the post is that you're both an advertising supported business and a subscription supported business. I know for certain parts of your coverage right now, you've made a decision to lower the paywall. Mm-hmm. How do you balance that and reconcile this trade-off between the public service, public good nature of news and the commercial imperatives of driving subscription business and building advertising mm-hmm. revenue? Sure. Um, I think we take that very seriously, uh, the public service part of it. Um, in fact, our editor, Marty Barron, sent out an email to all of our uh, registered readers or anybody for whom we had a, um, an email address to really let them know that we were making this COVID coverage free. We also were linking, uh, we created an email to cover the COVID crisis where all linked content was also offered for free. And we see that as a responsibility. Um, you know, we are definitely um, a, a part of our business is rooted, a very strong part of our business is rooted in our subscriptions. But I think we also take our responsibility to inform um, very seriously. Okay. And so let's talk about subscriptions because that's an interesting challenge in the advertising space. We've seen the rise of subscription-based advertising-free platforms. Is there a risk, do you think, that at some point, you know, there's clearly this public love of news, this public appreciation of news right now in times of crisis. Is there a risk for brands that news organizations move primarily subscription-based and therefore get locked out of being able to reach an audience? So I can't speak to the news industry at large, but I see the concern there. I mean, from the post standpoint, it's critical to have both. In fact, you know, Jeff Bezos talks about the tyranny of the or, and this is certainly not one that we would be taking a road down toward. Um, We see subscriptions and advertising as two extremely important and even complementary aspects to our business. On the one hand, advertising revenue has long been a major source of revenue for the Washington Post. We introduced the concept of a paywall digitally, at least, um, you know, about seven years ago. And as we've seen that become stronger, it actually represents something that creates a better audience pool for advertisers. They have, we have a better relationship with these readers. We have more data on them. But on the flip side, I think that our responsibility to subscribers is that we then provide them with an excellent user experience. We protect their time, their attention, understand their habits, and we can build a stronger product overall. For us, the idea of being an or proposition of, of advertising or subscriptions is, is completely something that we would never uh, we would never look down toward. However, you know, I think making sure that that's part of anybody's this this idea of a multi um, pronged strategy to your revenue is, is 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 something that I think will continue to remain really important. Okay, I think that's sort of true for everyone right now. You need, you know, the multi-pronged strategy is the only way to thrive and succeed, mm-hmm. especially, and we haven't spoken about, like local news has been particularly challenged through this crisis and they're the ones laying off and furloughing 
staff. Are there any insights you think that are unique to the post that would apply to local news organizations? Because to some extent, the Washington Post did start out as a local news mm-hmm. publication. Yeah. I mean, I think, uh, you know, local news is definitely an area that's near and dear to our heart. The idea, the learnings that I think any organization is going to come away from this with is that the importance of creating multiple revenue streams is not a nice to have, it's a must have. At The Post, we've actually started to work more and more with some of these local news organizations from a technology perspective. So one thing, you know, not uh, maybe everybody in the media industry knows, but um, we actually created a business called ARC uh, several years back, which is essentially a CMS that we run on behalf of many news organizations based on what we have seen work for The Washington Post. So so that's a technology offering. On top of that, we launched uh, over the summer last year a product called Zeus, which is ultimately helping publishers maximize their revenue by uh, strengthening their programmatic capabilities. Um, it, it makes their sites faster. It makes their ads load faster and become more viewable and ultimately helps them improve their overall yield. We've seen an increased interest in that offering, and we've been innovating a lot on that um, throughout this to really think about ways to help take um, some of the burden of managing some of those things in, a, in such a difficult time and allowing that to be something that we can offer to, to that marketplace. So you spoke about uh, Arc and Zeus. I'm wondering, are there any new ad products that are getting developed out of that that you can share with us? Yeah, there is actually. Um, and I think it actually ties back to where we started this conversation and, and what we're not necessarily trying to get too down in the muck and mire of is brand safety. Uh, and I think one of the things that we have tried to really differentiate, and I know, Joshua, you have been a proponent of it too, is brand safety versus brand suitability. Uh, And I think that this COVID crisis has actually thrust that into everybody's top of mind because back to how do you really appear uh, around, how do you show up around this type of content in a responsible way led us to really think about how do we then help advertisers be able to find their voice within this. And one of the things that we've seen is so many brands have had their COVID crisis sort of positioning or their statement ready to go on platforms like social. So if you look at what they're putting out on their Twitter or on their Insta handles, um, you know, it, it feels like there is messaging that they feel comfortable with. So we've actually created a product called Zeus Prime uh, that is uh, that, that easily transforms your social assets within seconds, really, within maybe seconds is, is aggressive, at least for my ad ops team, but, but very, very turnkey, taking what you have in social and actually creating it uh, into an ad unit uh, and then placing it next to content that would be relevant. So we're using COVID as an example here, but I think beyond how we'll leverage that in the future, we'll, we'll take all of the data, the first party data, the machine learned data, the um, predictive data that we've built up over the years and allow brands to show up via our Zeus Prime product combined with what we also call Zeus Insights, which is that first party and predictive data I talked about, and actually match the right message at the right moment for, for brands. Um, and, and it happens to be that sometimes the most real time or almost all the time, the most real time messaging from brands and the most relevant messaging from brands and the thing that ties back 
into what we're probably going to be reporting on is happening on social, but it's not being unlocked necessarily into their standard creative. So how can we actually help bring that to something that will help them be more timely and ultimately uh, perform even better? Um, so that's one of the innovations that we've really been um, pushing forward with. I think that's a really fascinating insight because you're right, like the creative process for, in air quotes, traditional advertising, but in this sense on digital, is so much slower and social so much more current and in the moment. So bridging those two gaps is really powerful. I won't ask if Zeus Prime's included with my Amazon subscription, <laughs> uh, but I can only wish and hope for, you know, some of our clients' sakes. Uh, one of the other things I want to get onto is, you know, expanding, you know, the brand of the post. We've seen a lot of news organizations extend their assets and try and become a bigger brand. I would say the Post has probably succeeded more than most at that. And it's mentioned in the same breath as the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and is seen as a, a truly national, important publication. What are you doing to sort of look to ex expand the brand and you know the types of products or services offered? Yeah, I, I think it's something that's been front and central prior to the crisis for the last, um, as you mentioned, you know, five years. I think uh, becoming not only a national brand, but a global brand um, has been really important to the Post. We've launched a lot of products that delve far beyond um, just politics that are happening in, in DC, but ultimately the intersection of so many different industries and policy. So technology, energy, healthcare, and that's ultimately, you know, made us far more relevant to a much broader swath of the population, but also the ability for us to really feel um, accessible uh, and, and like we're talking about things that matter to Americans and to people around the world. So that's come in the form of everything from our written word to the podcasts that we've launched to the newsletters that we've also really found have been a really powerful audience uh, acquisition tool for us, uh, whether those be national in scope or even global in scope. You know, when it comes to broadening out the consumer view of the brand and how we're perceived, it also comes down to how we fit into their lives through things like those lifestyle channels I was talking about. So we launched voraciously two years ago, we launched By The Way, which is our travel vertical. Last year, we launched an e-gaming vertical um, at the end of last year called Launcher. Now that we have substantiated that people look to the Washington Post for you know news that they can trust or for, for, for point of views and, and for, for advice that they can trust, we've really taken that into uh, some of the, the lifestyle um, and places in their lives where, where they can use that as well. I'm surprised that you didn't bring up uh, TikTok because I've Oh I know my the God. post is one of the big, you know, experimenters on TikTok. That's right. I mean, I think that that that's that's right too. I think thinking about how we also engage uh, readers and new readers in particular by leveraging some of these new platforms really, really early on. I mean, we were uh, pretty early into Twitch. We had politicians playing video games uh, a few years ago. We were really in early into TikTok, and Dave Jorgensen has kept me wildly entertained. Um, if you don't follow him, you should. He's, 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 he's great. But I think we see that, you know, many organizations shy away from thinking about putting their content outside platforms. That is part of a major part of our strategy. Um, and I think it, it's really making sure that we are where readers can find us and so where our brand also can become more relevant to them. So let's sort of wrap it up and we like to sort of end on an optimistic note that the pace of transformation 
right now has accelerated, and we're seeing 10 years compress into four months. Are there any sort of, I'll say, breakout innovations that you've seen resonate right now that you're betting on outside of, you know, the continued success on TikTok? I mean, we have a really strong, well-respected live business that we've always obviously talked about and, and really traded on the, the influence of the people in the room and then ultimately the quality of the production uh, and along with like the, the, the breaking news guests. We've just started our virtual events last week uh, and the live viewing numbers that we're seeing rival cable news. I mean, um, I don't, I don't think I can talk about them publicly. I'm not sure how much we're, 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 we're ready to, to put that out there, but you know, we've done three events and they are incredible in terms of both the quality of the people who are signing up to see them. And then the numbers of streams that are coming in. Um, and so what that intimates to us is, you know, the, is this in-person live event, business, something that is transforming and, and is virtual, something that will be more like the new normal or, or, or is that, is the feeling of that authenticity and that intimacy, even though you're through a screen, but it feels like people are um, less guarded. Is that something that we can look forward that really has a, a, even a broader impact than just our live business in, in general? No, I love that you've talked about that as authenticity because I think that's what everyone's learning from a content production perspective, that this is an opportunity to be much more authentic and human in the way you talk to and interact with people. On that note, I'd love to wrap it up. Uh, thank you again, Joy. I really enjoyed talking to you and appreciate your time. And thanks for being part of the Floor 9 podcast. Joshua, thank you so much for having me. Really, pleasure. Joshua and Joy, thank you for that fantastic conversation so Adam, we've we've come to our favorite section of, of the pod, news. Are you ready to talk about this week's news? I'm always ready to talk about this week's news. So first up, Roblox, the online game platform and game creation system, uh, had their seventh annual Bloxy Awards that drew spectator crowd of 600,000 individuals where they also saw in-game participation of upwards of 4 million uh, users, which is, I think, super impressive. And this goes back to this idea of uh, how we're seeing live just just, just explode um, during this time of quarantine. Yeah. And, you know, I think it also ties back to what we were saying about uh, about commerce uh, being tied to these events. Even though the uh, Bloxy Awards were not themselves monetized, Roblox as a platform uh, is monetized. It is a, a platform where players can create their own in-game content uh, and sell it to other players. Um, and that's actually what the awards are about. It's about celebrating sort of the best player creations. So it's, uh, you know, uh, probably a lot of those uh, attendees and a lot of those viewers were there looking for tips as to how to be better uh, better, you know, commerce solutions inside the game. So the other gaming news from this week is that both Facebook and Tencent in China um, have jumped into the game streaming race. Um, both Facebook Gaming and Tencent's new Madcat.tv are uh, focused specifically on mobile gaming. So I think everybody you know sees the rise in in, in gaming and how many people are, are, are at home gaming right now. Um, and they're trying to capitalize on that to leverage that into a position versus Twitch or uh, Mixer or any of those other platforms or YouTube gaming. Um, and you know, it's, it's just something to watch right now. These are new platforms. So they don't really have a large audience, but, um, the game streaming space is definitely heating up and we'll be keeping an eye on these because obviously coming from two major social platforms, uh, we, 
we'll be keeping an eye on these. Yeah, absolutely. The moral of the story is don't sleep on mobile gaming. It's it's huge. Uh, but next, our next bit of news uh, is a brand new app. Uh, it's called Clubhouse. It just launched this week and uh, took Twitter over by a storm. Uh, VC Twitter was just lit up uh, by the exclusivity of this platform. So for those that don't know, uh, Clubhouse is an audio-based social network where people can spontaneously jump into voice chat rooms uh, and talk together. Uh, and what's kind of unique is that the rooms are com- are are not labeled so you don't really know what you're walking into and what we see is that you know based on the conversation people just kind of bounce between room to room uh in order to find the room that is maybe like the most happening with the conversation or is most interesting to what you are but um i think it's really interesting because it's it's starting to rethink how we do social uh and different ways of getting you know integrated with local communities and niche communities um it's kind of like reimagining uh i guess out of really necessity uh of how and what we do to communicate with uh different people so i think this is super interesting um and i think we're gonna start to see more and more of these different types of apps sprout up to kind of rethink how we talk and communicate with uh, different people. Yeah, it's like uh, house party, but uh, just for voice. And I think you know we're seeing both of those are, are good examples of what what is now sort of being called spontaneous social apps. Uh, the idea being that you basically open them or turn them on when you are hanging out and and you know open to socializing, and then your various friends and acquaintances can drop in, and uh, you never know who who might be there and who might be. Uh, Walking by you on on a virtual yeah. <laughs> street, so to speak. The the digital office, uh, one might say. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, Google will now let businesses list products on Google Shopping for free. Um, so I think that's a pretty major announcement for everybody that was looking for ways to kind of get into that service. Um, we know that many brick and mortar retailers had to close their doors, uh, which had led to a majority of Google Shopping's listings becoming unshoppable. So in a way, this is a way for them to fill that demand and that need from their own uh, product perspective. Yeah, it's, it's a way for Google to, to grow usage of their shopping platform, which uh, they mostly monetize through ads anyway. So this is just a way to get more products and more merchants on the platform. The other Google announcement, uh, or not an announcement, the other Google news from this this week was uh, a leak that um, Google will be uh, developing a um, digital debit card um, for Google Pay, uh, much in the same way that Apple has done uh, for Apple Pay. So we don't know a whole lot about this. We don't know exactly when it'll be released, probably you know, with the next update to Android. But um, it definitely puts Google more into the data game uh, with consumer purchases and could help them actually complete a, a circle of data um, around what people are buying and how, how that influences the products that they're seeing on Google Shopping. Yeah, absolutely. It- really brings up a conversation of uh, what Google's going to do with your data, especially like like that shopping data. Um, but again, that's just one more input that could potentially be used if they do it in a transparent way uh, to really improve your overall experience. So it, it could kind of go either way, depending on how they position it. Um, they just have to kind of be smart about it, but we'll, we'll see. We'll keep an eye on it. It's still very new. Um, but with that, that's, that's our show this week. Uh, that's a wrap. Um, so as always, uh, this Friday, Tune in uh, twitch.tv forward slash IPG underscore lab. Uh, we got a great guest this week. Chris Stefanik from Wattpad is joining myself and Ryan for this week's IPG Media Lab office hours on Twitch. So we'll see you all there. And if you like, share, tell a friend. Uh, you know, we greatly appreciate anything that you can do. Uh, so thank you and talk soon. Mm-hmm.